Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swartz. And my name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 368th show is author Keen Bonnet, who will be talking to us about behind the scenes at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. Rick, the floor is yours. Hey, thanks, John. Keen, uh, you mentioned in uh, the broadcast version that uh, Guthrie is a not-for-profit theatrical uh, organization. How do you fund what has got to be a considerable uh, uh, expense envelope for the theater? Well, um, uh, let me give you a little history on that, too, because when it first started with uh, Tyrone Guthrie, the first three years, Guthrie was there, and they filled the seats, and they pretty much operated um, fairly well. But when he left, the theater kind of lost its direction. They realized they didn't really have a source of funding other than uh, audience members paying for tickets. And they fumbled around through the uh, late 60s, and at one point were on the verge of, the board of directors was on the verge of saying, we're going to have to let all the actors go, and we're going to have to rent out the theater to other companies. And they brought in, uh, in I think 1969, a, a man named Don Schoenbaum to be their managing director, and he started turning things around, started uh actually um, realizing they needed some kind of a uh, funding. They needed donors. They also needed to go after uh, arts grants. And he started putting that in place. And then a couple years later, they brought in Michael Langham as uh, a director. And Michael had been a protege of Guthrie's. And Michael started uh, doing a few more what you would say more popular plays, like we had mentioned, Arsenic and Old Lace and The Matchmaker and all that, started adding them to the mix of Shakespeare and some of the other classic plays. And the theater started filling up again. People started showing up. And now it's become a uh, kind of an enterprise where it's it's a lot of grant money, a lot of donations. They have a uh, donor funds. Um, and they have now become basically, uh, you know, year-round enterprise. They have outreach programs. They tr- uh, travel to um, uh, outstate communities and everything. Um, so they, you know, they they advertise as well as uh, gain the the money and donations. Okay. Okay. Well, I get the honor, I guess, of. Um, <laughs> asking you if there are any interesting stories, backstage stories, that you'd be willing to share with our listeners. And I just happen to have a few. <clears throat> uh, I had mentioned Michael Langham, the director, and uh, he was a very, uh, very low-key, very soft-spoken person. And uh, he was always very, I, I'd almost say gentle in his in his directing and how he had the actors move about and everything. And uh, we had an actor named Lance Davis in, uh, uh, I think the play was Love's Labor Lost, and he t- told Michael, he says, I'm having trouble with, I'm supposed to say these two lines, one right after the other, but they don't make sense together. They don't make sense at all. And Michael said, well, uh, you see a squirrel. 
And Lance said, what does that mean? And he said, well, you have one thought, and then you see a squirrel. And Lance went, oh, okay, just like a dog sees a squirrel. Changes his train of thought. So the next day during rehearsals, uh, this production stage manager is sitting with uh, the director, Michael, and he notices that Lance is doing the lines completely different. And he says, what's, what's going on with Lance? And Michael just turned to him and said, he sees a squirrel. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, one of the one of the most well known stories for people that worked back at, in in that uh, time back in the seventies was during Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, there was Virginia Payne and Barbara Brin were the two matronly aunts, and Peter Michael Getz was their nephew Mortimer. And one day during a matinee. During the scene where Mortimer has discovered that his ants are poisoning old men and burying them in the basement, and he's trying to figure out what, what are we going to do about this, uh, and this is well into the play, uh, a little old man and two little old ladies made their, they somehow got past the ushers and made their way down the aisle. And I think I've told you that the, uh, the stage is basically at floor level, a couple steps up from floor level, and they walked right up to the stage and looked around. And the man walked up the steps and walked up to Peter on stage in the middle of the show, tapped him on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir, could you tell me where my seats are? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and Peter, and Peter uh, grabbed him by the arm and said, well, sure. And he walked him back down into the, uh, the uh, house part of the theater there. And, and an usher finally showed up and seated them well. Peter is the kind of person that um, he can, what you call, go up or lose it on stage pretty easily. And he and Barbara Brin had worked together a lot, and both of them had to be careful when they worked together because one could make the other start laughing, and then they would both be laughing. Well, Peter started laughing, and he couldn't control himself, and he had to go up stage and kind of hide behind a potted fern. And Barbara, Barbara also lost it. And she went upstage and hid behind the fern with Peter while they're trying to get themselves back together. Well, Virginia Payne, who was the um, the actress that had been in uh, Ma Perkins on radio, she was an old pro. She knew all of the parts. So while they're trying to get it together, and this being an important part of the play, she went into a monologue that incorporated all three parts and kept the kept the story moving. And then fortunately. Wow. They went to a blackout and were able to get off stage. <laughs> That's a great well, story. You're right. <laughs> and then uh, another one. Sorry, another on. one was uh, during of mice and men. Uh, the character Lenny has just killed uh, Curly's wife, and they've sent all these cowboys out to look for him. And they all have shotguns and rifles, and they they come off the stage and they go up the aisles of the of the theater and they go through the doors out into the lobby and they're running back and forth. And every now and then they throw open a door and they shout, we, he's not here. We, we didn't find him here. And so all this is going on. Well, the original Guthrie theater was built with an entire glass wall on the street side. And these guys with guns and shotguns are running through the, uh, through the lobbies. The, wow. There's two, two floors of lobbies and a cop car comes by with two cops, and they see these guys with guns. And they did what cops do. So when the curtain call came, none of those cowboys made it to the curtain call because they were all in handcuffs 
down by the box office with the ushers trying to convince the police that, no, these guys are actors. <laughs> They're missing their curtain call. So. <laughs> wow. I'm going to take it. That's great. Uh, in a different direction. And one of yeah. my favorite lines in the whole movie is Peter O'Toole's in my favorite year. I'm not an actor. I'm a movie. Uh, I'm a movie star. In yes. your experience, have you come across some individuals that kind of fit into that category? My brother is an actor. He's a professional actor in South Carolina, and, and he's done a ton of plays in Columbia. And he says, you would be surprised how many people come through that door. And you don't have to mention names. But have you ever come across those individuals? Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of big <laughs> egos, plenty of them. So, but there's also uh, surprisingly there's a lot of really nice people uh, right. that you run into that are you know. And one of the guys that I always thought was I was kind of amazed at just how regular he was was Mickey Rooney. Um, hmm. I worked I worked with him uh, on a show called Sugar Babies, right? And he showed up. Uh, on the opening night, he was late getting to the theater, so he was on his way from the airport, and the show started at 8, and it was about 10 to 8, and he was still on the way. He, I guess he put his makeup on in the car, in the limo or whatever. He got out of the car, goes in the stage door. The stage managers are like, Mickey, you got to get ready. you got to stand by. The, the show's starting, and he goes, no, wait a minute. And he goes over to the what's called the fly rail, where you pull all the ropes that bring in the drops and everything. And he walks up to every stagehand and goes, hi, I'm Mick. Glad to meet you. And he shook hands with everybody. And then throughout the run, sometimes the stage managers would have to shove him onto stage because he would be backstage telling us stories. (laughs) (laughs) That's very cool. Yep, yep. Yeah, I always heard he was a pretty mellow guy. Yes, he was very, yeah. So he was a lot of fun. Okay, Rick. Yeah, I was uh, wondering, uh, you also, uh, we, your, your title for the show is author. Uh, did Guthrie give you ideas for some of the the books that you've written? No, but um, I, while I was there, I actually, uh, I had written, I was just starting to write, and uh, I had written a short story, and I didn't know what to do with it. And uh, one of the actors, uh, Nicholas Kepros, uh, had signed on to, to act for the season, but uh, under the auspices that he could also direct a play at their experimental theater. And he read the short story, and he said, he said the, the play they gave me, he said, I can't stand. Can you turn this into a play? <laughs> so I, I turned it into a play, and it ended up uh, being produced at the uh, what was called the Guthrie Two at that time was uh, their experimental theater. But uh, so I guess actually my the, my theatrical experience didn't affect me at all as far as writing. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, okay, so I know that you've also done some work on movies. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Okay, well, uh, and also um, I, I built and, uh, built the props and sets for the first Sesame Street live show, and I built cool. props and sets for the first Muppet live show. Those both originated out of uh, Minneapolis. And uh, I was a prop man for uh, Purple Rain. I worked on the, on the shoot for that. Cool. And then... Uh, 
I also did, uh, I, I built this, the interior sets for the old men's houses in Grumpy Old Men. And then later, uh, while they were shooting, I, I was on the special effects crew. But I found that I enjoyed uh, the live theater and being backstage a lot more than doing the movies. The movies is a lot of standing around. And uh, I guess the long hours come with both uh, the theatrical or the movies. But um, it just seemed uh, being in a theater in the same place every day was, was a lot more comfortable for me. Okay. All right. I have to ask, the, did you meet Prince when you were on the stage set there? i got to ask that. You, you said it. Did I, did I get any perks? No, did no, you meet Prince. Prince? Did you meet Prince? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I uh, actually, um, every night I had to go into his dressing room. We were uh, filming at a, a little nightclub called First Avenue here, and it was during a cold spell. It was about 25 or 30 below, and their dressing room was really cold so uh they had a little uh lp gas heater in there and he and his bodyguard neither one wanted to touch it and turn it off or anything so my job was to go in every night and turn it off so that or turn it on in the morning to heat it up and everything so i would see him every day uh he was very a very quiet person he seemed very shy but he also if you watched him much you knew he knew what he wanted to do and he was in charge. Interesting. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 368th show, author Keen Bonet, who talked to us about behind the scenes at the Guthrie Theater. The history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com, Put K-A-L-A-H-D-2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.